I have entitled this talk, It's Not the What, It's the Why. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But I'm going to start with the scripture that this talk is based in, and that is um, Luke 10, 38 through 42. Um, As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all of the work? Tell her to come and help me. How many of us can relate to that? But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. So I've heard this teaching, you probably all have too, many, many times. I've done a ton of Bible studies on this, this passage of scripture. And honestly, I've heard it one way, basically the interpretation. And that is, Martha's priorities are wrong, and Mary is doing the right and the good thing. The problem is that I have always related to Martha, never Mary. And I have struggled every single time that I have heard this um, being preached on, or even just reading it myself. And so, having a degree in theology, studying God's word, also having a degree in counseling and being able to recognize kind of where thoughts and feelings and behaviors come from, where they're rooted. I actually have come up with a, a, a different scenario, um, a different perspective. And, and so I, I want to preface this with I'm not disagreeing with um, what most theologians say, that it is absolutely good and right and it's priority to sit at Christ's feet and listen to his teachings. So be aware, that's not anything that I'm disagreeing with. But I do think that there's some underlying things that, to be honest, I've never heard before. Um, So were Martha's priorities wrong? Preparing a meal for Jesus and his disciples, was that not the right thing? Well, I want to take a look at just a few passages ahead of the scripture. So we're not even talking about like different chapters. We're in the same chapter, but just a few passages ahead. What Christ actually says about hospitality. So starting with verse 1, it says, The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were the instructions to them. So this is Christ speaking. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go and remember that I am sending you. My phone just. I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals. Now that's a whole nother sermon, right? Like don't even take extra shoes, I'm in trouble. (laughs) And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, then the blessing will stand. And if they're not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move, key, don't move forward 
from home to home, stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. Interesting. So Christ actually commends hospitality. He, he expected that. His disciples, he taught his disciples even to expect that. And so I think that that's part has always been part of my problem with the story and part of the interpretation with Martha. The fact is, I don't think Martha was really doing anything wrong. I don't think that that's what Jesus was correcting. I don't think it was the what. I think it was her why. Growing up, I knew my dad loved me. There was no question of his love for me. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that with what I, was, what I went through with him. Um, he was very protective in an interesting way. Um, you know, I think that the people around him knew he would, he would die for me. Um, the problem was is that he was a full-blown alcoholic and drug addict my entire life. And so... My dad's addiction definitely paid or, or caused me to have to pay a price um, in being in relationship with him, especially as a child. He was a functioning alcoholic and drug addict. He actually went to work every day and retired from that job. Um, but in his addiction, when he was actually high and drunk, he was very, very harsh and mean. Now, he never hit me. He never even spanked me. He never laid a hand on me. Um, it wasn't that, but his demeanor, his words, his tone, all of those things for a little girl were very, very scary. So, and this is what children basically have to do when they're in, put in a situation where they really don't have any power or control. They have to find ways to cope. Now, my mom's in the audience, um, but my mom actually was really kind of sick and tired of his behaviors by the time I was six. So she packed us up. We lived in Michigan, and we headed to California. Unfortunately, there are laws, and my dad had the right to see me. And I don't want to say unfortunately, because I, I truly, truly um, love my dad. He's no longer here, but... Um, so, so in the, in the summers, the court order was that I would go and spend, um, every summer of my childhood with him, which actually took away any level of protection, right, from his addiction. Like there was, my mom wasn't there to be able to cover me or protect me. I, every time I got in the car with him, he was drunk. I spent many hours, many days in bars. I helped him roll joints. Um, but in spite of all of that, there was this, this scariness to him in his addiction, which was day in and day out. And so as a child, I, I, I never learned how really to be comfortable in my own skin. I actually kind of developed without even knowing this mantra that if he's okay, I'm okay. So I would just work to make sure he was okay, so then I would feel safe and secure because security was something that was very much lacking for me. And so I, I mean, I wish that when you're 18 or 21, those things go away, but 
it becomes so ingrained and enmeshed in who we are that that is something I started to practice throughout my uh, adulthood as well, where when people would confront me that I didn't necessarily, and I don't mean confront in a bad way, but just be in front of me, I, I morphed into whatever I thought they wanted or needed in me so that I would feel safe and secure. Paul actually addresses this in scripture. He teaches in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, that as a child, we speak and think and reason like a child. But when he becomes a man, he gives up his childish ways. Many, many people misinterpret the scripture as um, that Paul's talking about like maturity. That's not the case. He's talking about this. He's talking about childhood coping mechanisms that you kind of have to do to cope and survive, but they no longer work in adulthood. They don't serve the relationships between adults. And so we have to learn how to put those things away. But you don't know what you don't know. So I want to share an example of how I operated day in and day out as an adult. This is a really minute example. Um, it's almost funny, but it, it's critical. I, I chose this example because I think everybody at some level kind of faces these types of situations. Um, not to say that you do what I do, but maybe there are some that do or did. And so um, I, I want to share just because I think it's more relatable. So in my early 30s, I was still, like Paul said, thinking and, and reasoning like a child. Um, I was, and that's, remember, is just when I'm triggered, right? So when we're triggered, that's when those childhood tendencies come out. It's not to say all of the time I was, you know, irrational and emotional, and it's not, that's not the case, but it's just when those little triggers come up. So... I was um, room mom for my boys' school. There was one year that all three of my boys were at the same school. I was room mom for all three. I was there all of the time. Um, I was doing parties and events and um, all of those fun things. And as a matter of fact, the next day this, of this particular day uh, was the, our Harvest Festival. Interesting. Um, so it was right around this time of year. And... Um, I had my own duties because I, I was, um, you know, working in, in there all of the time for the, the, the festival. And it was a major fundraiser for our school, so this festival was a big deal for, for all of us. Um, I was picking up the boys, and I also was a tutor, so I had to get them home, get them on their homework, because I had groves of kids coming in hour after hour um, to help tutor. So I see about 15 feet away this woman who's the PTA president. And we made eye contact, and I was like, oh, no. I, there was, it was too late to get out. It was too late to run away. I knew she wanted something. And so she found me, and um, she was in a panic. And she said basically that the, the, the mom that was supposed to make, bake, not buy, make and bake, those were the rules, um, the, the cookies for the fall festival the next day, um, dozens and dozens and dozens, that she fell ill. And so she couldn't do it. And please, 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 is there any possibly, possible way that I could just save the day and, and do this for her? And, you know, I'm thinking all the things that I have that evening. And I look her right in the eyes and I say, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, the next 10 seconds, to be honest, 
and, and this starts this went with, in my childhood with my dad, the next 10 seconds is what I lived for. Thank you. You're the best. I was safe. I was secure. She liked me. I was doing something good. Maybe it even looked Christ-like. And so I went home, and I was angry, frustrated. Truly, I felt like a victim, that I had been cornered and, and coerced into something that I didn't have the time or the resources to do. And that was the theme of my life. The, the, the self-talk was, why me? Why, why do people always ask me? I don't have time for this. I don't have the energy for this. I don't have the money for this. But here I am finding myself doing it again and again and again. You see, I never learned how to do things from a place of love and joy. It was always out of a need to feel safe and to be in control. What I agreed to that day wasn't wrong. It's like, I don't think what Martha was doing was wrong. It was my heart. It was my why. Martha may not be as extreme as me. Maybe she was. I don't know. But probably not as extreme as me. But I absolutely see so much of me in her. In most of our lives, our what is not wrong, right? Like making dinner for a sick friend or helping somebody run errands, serving in a ministry, giving financially. Those are good things, and they look Christ-like. But we have to ask ourselves, if, if we're not feeling any emotions or any, nothing's going on, then that's fine. But if there's those things going on that we're in conflict over, your heart is not in the right place, and it's time to really check your motivation. So I want to reread the end of chapter 10. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all of the work? Tell her to come help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all of these details. What is better and pleasing to the Lord? I think it was Mary's heart. I think she had pure motivation. Mary was doing what her heart told her to do. While Martha was cooking a meal, now let's, let's be really honest. And I was gonna entitle my talk, somebody had to make the meal. Really? Is that really the wrong thing? Is that what Jesus was correcting? I don't think so. Somebody had to cook the meal. They were expecting it. But it was her heart. It was her why to please from a wrong position, a wrong place. If, if I had said yes that day with a different heart, it would have absolutely played out so differently, right? Like, I walked in that, onto that school campus happy, excited about tomorrow, getting my kids. And I left so angry and resentful. If my heart was to make these cookies because I love the school, I, I want to support our fundraiser and our event, and I, wanna, I do want to be a helper, 
then it would have been the right thing and it would have been the right motivation. And none of those things would have happened. I think as believers, so often, and it might not be something that is super conscious for us, but it's definitely subconscious. I think that we get caught up in believing that saying no or saying what we need is actually ungodly or unkind. And so I've, I've come up with four steps, basically. I don't know what to call them, but four steps to work towards walking in love and pure motivation. And when we walk in love and pure motivation, then what happens is we start to actually operate more in who we are and in what we need. The truth of the matter is until I realized this, nobody knew me. Nobody knew me. They didn't know the truth. True me, as a matter of fact, I didn't know the true me. I never allowed it to come to the surface. So the first step is think about and list the reasons why you're about to say yes or move forward. So, for example, if we're listing reasons like, or we're operating in reasons like, I, I want them to like me, or I, even I don't, want, I, don't, I don't want to have to deal with, with people's being, with people being upset, or I want them to think good about me, or I want them to accept who I am. All of those things are rooted in fear and control. A few years back, not your youth pastor, not your sweet youth pastor, but my middle son. I will say, though, he is sweeter. My middle son is sweeter. <laughs> um, he, he struggled with addiction to drugs. And I can tell you it was the most heart-wrenching time of my life. And so I'm going to share a little bit of this because I want to make a, a point that's similar to the cookie story. And that is that it can, be, it can be something that you maybe deal with every day, like little things, people asking you to do things, you know, that stuff. But it can also be these, these decisions that are life-changing and, and scary and really hard. And it still has to come from the right motivation, the right place. Otherwise, you won't do the right thing. Long story short, after doing multiple things to try to get him to be clean and sober, and he lived with us, which was, that's my, that was my problem um, outside of what he was doing. But I knew God had made it clear, and I know as a counselor, he cannot live here. He cannot live with us. But the fear and the intensity of what will happen to him when he leaves our safe haven. I remember looking at my husband the night I kicked him out. And I said, I've just sent him to the wolves. And I did. It's exactly where he went. He went right to the people that give him drugs. I was so afraid of his death. I was so afraid that he would die. And he almost died twice. And I share this because my motivation to kick him out of the house was because I didn't want to help him use drugs. And by paying the rent, and providing food. I was doing all of that. I didn't want to be one of those people that was making it easier for him 
to use drugs. But for months, I didn't make the right decision right away. For months, I battled this decision. I begged and pleaded with God. My wrong motivation was just, it, it'll go away. It'll go away. I don't want the conflict. I don't want him to think that he, I don't love him. I don't want him to go live with those other people. I want to make sure every night he's home and he's okay. Fear and control. He's, he's good now, by the way. The second step is if fear or control have anything to do with your decision, stop, think, and pray. It's funny, when I wrote that, I was like, that sounds really, really familiar. Where did I steal this from? And then I thought, oh, it's stop, drop, and roll. <laughs> and don't do that. That won't work here. Um, so stop, think, and pray. Like, recognize your motivation. Really, when you start to feel those feelings, I still do it to this day, and I've been working on this for 13 years. But when you feel those emotions or those feelings, stop. We are, we are, our brain loves an automatic pathway. It loves to just jump on what it knows. It won't stop you unless you stop it. So what was automatically conditioned for me was to people please, to do what people thought and wanted, to be who they, who I thought that they needed me to be. That was my automatic. I had to, every time somebody came in front of me where I started to kind of feel those feelings, I had to stop. I, I remember a mom calling me to ask if I could pick her kid up from school. And I was in the middle of this work. And I was like, can I call you back? I mean, it's such a simple request, but I had to make sure my motivation was pure. That I wasn't like, okay, now she'll want to be my friend or she'll like me or it even creates security in me. It's ridiculous. I had to stop and change those patterns and those dynamics. The third step is identify what you're afraid of or are trying to control and then work towards healing and change. With my middle son, Chad, I mean, I, I, I was a counselor and I was in counseling for this. I went and saw a counselor, a mentor, multiple times to talk this out, to be reminded of the truth that this is right and healthy. Even if he dies, it's the right thing to do. And then I'm not guaranteed that he's not going to die if I keep him in my house. That's, that's false control. That's an illusion. So being able to, to really seek God's word and what God says about this and seek counseling or, or help from other people that can guide you when it feels really tough and, and hard and scary. And as a matter of fact, well, let me say my fourth and, and then I'll, I'll jump into that, but the fourth step is to begin to be an honest version of yourself by communicating thoughts, feelings, and needs. This is the most important step because this starts to help you become who you are. See, Mary? Mary was being who Mary was. She knew her sister was in there slaving around, but she chose what was of value to her. A lot of times we think that when we're uncomfortable, it's wrong or it's bad. I really think the opposite. I believe God rejoices when we're uncomfortable because it's a time and an opportunity to grow. And that's what this is all about, is letting yourself be in the uncomfortable. Spend some time in it and see what God does with it versus just jumping into the automatic. 
begin to embrace the freedom of saying what you mean and meaning what you say. So I'm going to close in a few minutes, but I, I want to talk about this verse that was the beginning of my process. I memorized it. When I found it, I, I knew it was truly for me. And it, it's a tool I've always used all these years to help me cope and, and change my coping mechanisms into really working to operate in God's truth regardless of what I'm feeling. 2 Timothy 1.7, um, God did not give us a spirit of fear, rather a spirit of power, love, and mind. Now as I dug into this scripture when I first found it, I realized something really important. And that is, I couldn't operate, none of us can, in both spirits. So none of us are operating in both spirits at the same time. You are actually choosing. It's a command. You're choosing one or the other. You're choosing to operate in fear, or you're choosing to operate in love, power, and sound mind. Now, a spirit of fear can look very differently for different people. It can look controlling. It can look distant. It can look stoic or cold. It can look anxious. It can look really hyper-emotional. But this is not operating in a spirit of love, power, and sound mind. And sometimes, you know, there might be people even in this room that are like, I have no problem saying no. As a matter of fact, I say no all the time. What's your heart in that? Is, is that what God wants for us? Like, it, it's kind of the same thing, even though it's the opposite. If you're a no person all of the time, check your motivation. Why? Why are you saying no all of the time? What are, are you protecting from something? Are you guarding vulnerability, which... We're called to be relational people. Living in the mindset of, like I shared, this was my, my constant self-talk. I have to. Even now when I go to the gym, I, I do CrossFit, and it's horrible, horrible. And, and so every day, it's a, my husband's like, oh my gosh, are you ever, ever, ever going to not do this? I'm like, I don't think so. So... If, if he, like, comes in, because he works out before me usually, if he comes in and he's like, you need to really pray about this one. Like, I'm like, sorry, too much information, but I have, like, diarrhea. I'm, like, sick. Like, that's, I'm just so in my head about stuff. So, <laughs> I, I mean, even in that, like, I have had to learn to practice. Like, I don't have to go to the gym. I mean, think about it. Like, I get to. I really do get to. Some people don't. And, and this is a blessing, and I have to look at it that way. So when we're saying things like, I have to, they're making me. I have no choice. Those are all powerlessness stances. It's all spirit of fear. Sometimes we, we, we need to say no, and, and sometimes we know we do need to say yes, and our motivation isn't pure. So we just need to, we need to stay in the yes, but we just need to work on, on the motivation. We need to work on the thoughts we're having and the feelings we're experiencing to align it more to God's word. So I encourage all of us today, even the men in the room, to work to be like Martha. See, that's the opposite of what most people say. I, I want us to be like Martha. I want us to serve others and be inviting and show kindness. But we must remember to do it with the heart of Mary. So I'm going to pray, and then Paul is going to close us out with some verses. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. We are grateful for your goodness. We're grateful that we don't have to get stuck 
in old ways. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live in a spirit of fear, as a matter of fact, regardless, regardless of our circumstances. You have provided us the ability to walk in hope and to walk in love and peace and joy and, and, and to be empowered, and we're grateful for that. And so I just pray for these people here and just ask God that whatever it is that you would have for them in this message, that they would take that with them and that they would be able to chew on that and really surrender it to you, God, and that you would move more and more within this church with our people, that we are living and walking freely with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.